Welcome to Money in the Mind. Join Andy, a mental health therapist, and Aaron, an accountant, as they explore personal finance, psychology, and provide resources to help on your financial journey. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Money in the Mind. I'm Aaron, joined by my buddy Andy. Andy, how are you? I am good, Ronald McDonald. How are you? I'm doing well. Today we are going to discuss change, behavior change, and of course, how does that relate to our financial habits? We'll talk about needs. And uh, before we did that, Andy, I have a little bit of a theory that I wanted to share with you. Ooh. And it's, it's related to what we're discussing today, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I haven't shared this with you yet, so this could be interesting. But I came across an article by the psychologist and financial advisor, Daniel Crosby. He's a great one. I've read a book of his called The Laws of Wealth, and he does a lot of writing. But he he wrote a little blog post about talking to people about money and their financial behaviors and their behavior change and how sometimes people don't want to hear from a financial advisor or from a financial coach that that they've got all of these, you know, psychological biases and, you know, cognitive issues and that they're really irrational and that they need someone like a behavioral coach to help them through that or maybe even a psychologist to help them through that. So I thought that was really interesting and and we've had some discussions about, you know, we'd like to have more listeners. We we're not sure why some episodes that we think went pretty well, aren't getting more traction. And I'm guessing it's kind of a theory here that it might be that some folks don't necessarily want to hear that they've got all of these irrational ways that they think about money, or maybe that they're maybe not in a place where they want to change or maybe even think they need to make a change. You know, especially if you're if you're anywhere in the middle class type of level, you make enough money to meet your needs. You know, you might be saving, you might be able to sleep well at night. Um, and those type of folks maybe probably don't need to hear about irrational behaviors and ways that they think about money. We were just talking about our money scripts episode. And my personal opinion right now is that money scripts are the just the basic ideas and beliefs that we hold about money, sometimes unconscious those might be the single most important things to understand if we want to make a change with our financial behavior. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying people really don't want to hear about how they're maybe irrational. And that includes myself. I've got all my cognitive biases that might prevent me from making some kind of a change or even be willing to admit that I should make a change in some area, whether it's financial or otherwise. So that's uh, maybe a theory about why, you know, we'd like more people to listen to this episode or this couple of episodes. Maybe it's just that, you know, people don't know or don't want to hear that they might have some type of hang up where they might get the message that, oh, I need to change this because I have this irrationality about fill in the blank. Right. So two two responses to that. One, you had mentioned something about like maybe people don't want to hear about their cognitive biases or things like that from a financial planner, investor, or coach. 
They'd want to hear it from maybe a therapist or a psychologist or something. And I think to address that issue, you know, often we're, we're always looking for expert um, advice, right? Like we're always looking for somebody to confirm something or, you know, why would I want to take medical advice from my maybe chiropractor instead of going to my primary care physician because my primary care physician went to a few more years of college or, or, or something like that. So, you know, I do think people have it in their head to look for, or, or at least uh, pretend to look for the most quote unquote credible source of information, or maybe it's just somebody to confirm their own cognitive biases, but that's, that's kind of what I think about that. And then when it comes to yeah, I, this is exactly what we'll talk about today. Why people are so resistant to change and why people don't want to take those steps or why people just want to stay comfortable in whatever situation they're in, even if it's not good for them. I mean, I I work with people who have been abused for years and years and years every day at work. And when it comes to helping them leave. Cause I, obviously those of us who aren't in abusive relationships, which first off, that's amazing. Uh, it, it's, it's awful, awful, awful. I've heard the most horrific stories about people in abusive relationships for us just to look out and say, well, why can't you just leave them? Like the psychological madness behind that is just so much deeper than just, why can't you just leave them? So when we talk about change and we talk about what causes people to stay in what we would envision is very crappy situations or situations that are very clearly not good for us, as long as we quote unquote, you know, I guess have some needs that are being met, then we tend to ignore the bad. And this is exactly what we want to talk about today, how or even why we ignore certain financial situations that we're in. And we just kind of maybe skate by in life and put our put our focus more into other things. I don't know, Ron. What do you what do you think about that? I think that sounds great. It it reminds me. I've been reading a book called Evicted about a group of people. Um, the author goes through different folks and follows them through the city of Milwaukee. It's one of those situations where, and this is you know a confession on my part. I used to think this way maybe 10 years ago or so, but I used to think, well, people in poverty, just just get a job. Just if you, they've got an addiction, just stop taking painkillers or whatever. But it's kind of like what you were saying, Andy, like, well, just get out of that abusive relationship, just leave. And there's so, so much that prevents people from being able to leave their situation. You know, people who are constantly getting evicted from the worst apartments and trailer homes imaginable, they they just get in this cycle. And the book also, I haven't finished it, but the book also gets into some of the systemic ways in which folks are kind of kept in this cycle of poverty. And and that's that's for another episode for sure. But it's <laughs> it's so oversimplifying it to say, just get a job, just get out of that bad relationship we'll we'll see where this goes but i'm yeah definitely interested in what you have to say about this this is not something i'm an expert in by any means on how to how to change how to get out of really tough situations yeah and uh so yeah just to just to dive right in so some some good information that we're going to be talking about today there are three 
models of change that I found, we're going to focus mainly on one, and that's called the trans theoretical model. And if you are in the mental health field, you will know this, or if you don't know it, uh, retake about every class that ever talks about behavior change or where people are in their stage of change. So we'll talk about the change theoretical model in a little bit, and I'll kind of explain that. But the other two models or theories that I found was the social cognitive theory, which basically says it focuses on the role of observing and learning from others on positive and negative reinforcement of behavior. So that's basically kind of what we see and that can uh, kind of what we see if we're seeing somebody act very poorly and being treated very poorly, then we're going to look at that and go, ooh, maybe I shouldn't do that. And then hopefully not do that. And then the other one is a theory of planned behavior. And it assumes that people's behavior is determined by intention and it is predicted by attitudes, subjective norms, such as like beliefs about whether people approve or disapprove and perceived behavior control, which is basically be beliefs about whether or not it's easy or difficult to do, which I'll kind of explain in uh, quoting some of BJ Fogg, Dr. BJ Fogg's material a little bit later, which talks about like uh, motivation, action, using prompts and, and what have you. So yeah, so the trans theoretical model, and I don't know if I, I, I always just call this the stages of change. Um, it's kind of the just assumed knowledge for most, at least therapists that I talk to. And psychologists have this way of putting real big words to something pretty simple sometimes, Ron. Uh, I think it's just to make our egos even bigger than they already are. So as soon as you, as soon as you said trans theoretical, I, you know, I tensed up and got a little scared. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and it's just, it, it's simply like this. So the stages of change are as follows. There's the pre-contemplative stage. There's the contemplative stage. There's the preparation stage. There's the action stage. And then there's the maintenance stage. Now, relapse is a part of the stages of change. I don't call it a stage. It's just something that could happen. It doesn't have to happen, but sometimes it does. And so just to give you a quick overview, we're going to run this through as if we're taking an alcoholic through the stages of change and kind of what they what they would be envisioning, because that's something that it, we constantly use in substance abuse treatment and kind of identifying what stage of change that they're in. So pre-contemplative stage for an alcoholic would basically be like, nope, I don't have a problem. I don't have any need to change. There's no issue. Basically, like, even though I have eight DUIs and I hurt people whenever I drink, there's there's no problem with me. It's a problem with everyone else. Contemplative stage, this, this alcoholic might say things like, you know what, I can see that there's some issues uh, but I'm not, I'm not really ready to change. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I could probably take the next step, but I, I'm not going to preparation is basically, okay, I definitely have an issue. Here are some steps that I want to take in order to change. So I might plan on going to AA meetings. I might plan on going to, I might plan on getting a sponsor, somebody to hold me accountable, Action is I'm literally going to meetings, I'm going to treatment, I am talking to someone about my stuff, um, I'm trying to get better. And maintenance is like, okay, I've, you know, I'm still maybe going to some of those meetings and treatments and whatnot, but I'm maintaining, I'm maintaining a status quo. It maybe is a little bit easier because um, it's one thing that we know about substance abusers is that 
one day of sobriety is a big deal. And you need to, if you have anyone that does struggle with substance abuse and they, you know, come up and they're like, Hey, I've been, I've been, I've been clean for a week, like praise the living heck out of them. We have no idea. If you do not struggle with substance use, you have no idea what it's like to be in the mind of a, of a user anyway. And then of course, after the maintenance, there's, there's sometimes for relapse and that's just, Hey, when, when that alcoholic would maybe start you know, take a drink or, or kind of go back into the cycle. And by no means are these stages of change like a, okay, you got to go through this one and then this one and this one and then this one. Cause you can go from, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm preparing. I can't wait. I'm, I'm making these steps to, you can go back to pre-contemplative of, you know what? forget this. I, I don't have a problem anymore. And you can go back and forth. So from a mental health standpoint, it's always good to know where people are in their stages of change to be able to know how to help them. Because I can tell you right now, Ron, if if we are trying to work with a person who literally does not think they have a problem, we're not going to be able to help them. It doesn't matter how great of a therapist or financial advisor or whatnot you are. If, if somebody doesn't want to get help, they're not going to get help. So in a nutshell, sure. that's the trans theoretical model of the stages of change. It's a lot easier to to handle than the than the original word trans theoretical. <laughs> I've never heard. I this is not something you've. To, I mean, you've told me about the stages stages of change before, but I'm not familiar with the trans theoretical model myself. So that's a that's a doozy. Oh, definitely. But it, but it makes a lot of sense. Oh yeah. And, and like I said, it's just a way for, um, you know, people in psychology to put big fancy words to something that could be more easily explained. So yeah, I think, that, so, I think we all do that. Right. And so, yeah, by understanding where people are in the stages of change, that is when we can really start to kind of do a lot of therapeutic work or even, if somebody's struggling with a financial decision and they just don't want to do it, they might be in that contemplative decision or that contemplative stage, but maybe they just don't know they need that extra push or they need that extra value system check, or maybe they need to look into their needs of what isn't being met as to why they're maybe staying in that contemplative instead of staying or instead of taking that, that uh, leap into the preparation stage. And I know Ron, you had some stuff prepared talking about needs yeah, I did. And I, I'm just thinking, just to give an example or two of, of folks that might be in a financial situation where, you know, they could be in like a pre-contemplative or contemplative stage. And I think about the work of Dr. Brad Klontz, who we've mentioned quite a bit, but he lists money disorders and credit card overspending, getting into huge cycles of debt that can be problematic. I think about maybe someone who's in like a financial enabling and a financial dependency type of situation where maybe it's a parent who is constantly giving financial support to a son or daughter and the son or daughter is dependent on that and they might be, you know, out of college or at an age where they don't need the support or, but because of maybe a cycle of enabling and dependency, maybe they do uh, need the support and it kind of creates an unhealthy link between the two. And you might have a parent, for example, trying to buy the love and support and approval of their son or daughter or whomever it might be, another family member or friend. So many, many scenarios that you could envision for 
someone who's in a, a tough financial situation that could maybe should require some kind of intervention. And it's just really, really difficult to get out of that cycle because there are, you know, some beliefs embedded that that suggest to that person, well, I need to keep doing this so that my children will still love me or whatever the case may be. Right. Because they have certain needs that are being met and that's why they want to stay in that that kind of cycle. And I had a I had a professor that I respect just so, so, so very much explain this. And and I don't know if we talked about the egg on the show before, but this professor of mine explained it in such beautiful ways. She basically said, think about this. And she always drew this like egg shape on, on the board and then drew a little stick person. And she basically said, this is you and your egg. And this in your egg is everything you know and everything that is both good, but it's also really crappy in there too. And you know your garbage and you know your crap but it but you know it and that's the thing and so we get so comfortable staying in this egg you know whether it's the good times or the bad times and that we don't want to step outside of the egg or even make our egg a little bit bigger and so this is it kind of helps people explain like why do i do the things that i do it's like because it's comfortable even though and and going back to the the abuse uh, uh story from from earlier even though people are in these terrible life situations, they still know what to expect. Even if it's, you know, when this happens, this is going to happen at home or, or if I do this, this is what's going to happen. You know it because you have no idea what it's going to be like without that either. Maybe it's better. Maybe it's worse. Who knows? But we get so comfortable living in this egg that we just, we allow that, that, we allow ourselves to live with that garbage and we just become comfortable with the crap essentially. Sure. And it's not because of any moral failing or some kind of huge character flaw necessarily that people get into these really horrible situations. Sometimes it's just honestly just a matter of good luck or bad luck. Like I've, you know, we look at the situation we've been in recently where George Floyd is is murdered by a police officer and we have the ensuing protests and problems. And we talked about this, Andy, a little bit, and I don't want to get into the weeds here, but you and I grew up extremely lucky, born as white males in the United States to very healthy middle-class families. Uh, honestly, like that's, we didn't have any choice in in the situation we were born into. So sometimes the good or bad circumstances are just a function of a bad roll of the dice in some cases. And that doesn't mean we want to try and just, we want to accept the situation that we're in, but it doesn't mean that we have to necessarily stay there, which is kind of the purpose of our episode today, where how do we, how do we change? And for some people in tough situations for, if you're not a white male in the United States, you might have some barriers and, you know, the chances are good. You'll have some barriers that Andy, you and I have not had. And I'm learning more and more about this. But change has varying levels of difficulty. Um, sometimes you're in a tough situation because of bad luck. You didn't choose it. And we're trying to, as we always want to do, is provide some hope and some ways to say, okay, here's how we can begin to try and address some of these really tough circumstances. And we don't have all the answers, of course, but we're just trying to 
I don't know, provide some help and some resources. Exactly. So one of the things that I, I prescribe to pretty heavily when I, when I approach mental health is people often don't change because they have certain needs that are being met. So let's talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. For those of you who don't know, Maslow's Maslow's hierarchy of needs is this pyramid, or I guess this triangle, because pyramid would imply three dimensions, and I'm looking at a two-dimensional triangle. So you have uh, at the very bottom, we have basic needs toward the middle is psychological needs and toward the top or the self-fulfillment needs. Now, we're not going to 100% uh, you know, subscribe to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. In fact, I believe Ron has some refuting facts, but just, just for a quick oversimplification at the very bottom, if your psych- physiological needs are not met, such as food, water, shelter, and your safety and security aren't need, then no, you're not going to care about trying to change who you are and make behavior changes. If you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, you're not going to be able to say, golly gee willikers, man, I should, I should really start putting a couple bucks in my savings account. You know, it's just, it's, it's not going to happen. And that is one thing that I do pretty well subscribe to. But then in that middle, you have your psychological needs, which is belongingness and love, which I often think, and just to start to refute it, I think almost belongs at the bottom with basic needs. Ron, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I'm not an expert on the, the, the hierarchy of needs, but I, yeah, did find some information. I'm looking at it right now. And I, I would have expressed last night. I did say it. <laughs> yes. No, but but I feel like I did. Yeah, I would I would agree just on my layman's understanding that yeah, the belonging belongingness and love, those emotional, relational friendship type of needs are as important as having food and water and security and warmth. Yeah, and that and that's that's exactly where I'm going to come into is that like we as because he he later recounted what we read in that book basically he basically said like no you need human connection and that's something that i see all the time in in the work that i do is is so badly people are so isolative and so alone that so many of these you know these psychological needs just fester and become such such serious mental health symptoms, you know, whether that's, whether that's extreme depression, anxiety, panic, even some bouts of psychosis I know can, can come up because of not just genetics and substance abuse, but I, I truly believe in a lack of human connection when people are forced to be alone for, for so, so, so very long, which I think we are absolutely seeing with COVID-19 and, you know, months into quarantine people are just are hurting so bad, which is something that I do not believe is being addressed adequately. And I know I began having this conversation many, 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 many times with a bunch of my friends is that just, we aren't talking about the the mental health implications behind quarantine, but we as humans need connection. I No man is an island without connection, without talking, without like I said, just beat this dead horse without human connection. Like I, I'd say it goes right down with some of those basic needs at that pyramid. And, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't necessarily need a big theory or 
a groundbreaking research article to to know that yeah we need good connection with other people we we need to feel loved we need to feel that we belong and that other people accept us so yeah it's a yeah and that it can it can go hand in hand with our our own financial situation yeah absolutely. even if we're not aware of it mhm so so getting into more of the applicable steps and things that we can do to help us understand more about our own maybe financial situation or even just if we want to just change a behavior in our life that that we don't really like. So first and foremost, understand that discomfort causes change and it has for you know thousands and thousands of years in human civilization. If we became comfortable with the status quo, we wouldn't have the technological advances we do. We wouldn't have the changes that we do that understand that it's because we've been uncomfortable that we look to something else to, to help us. So it's completely normal to experience discomfort. And I know we don't necessarily enjoy it, but it's something that has benefited us and probably in some instances not benefited us as well. Cause I do think that some of the, some of the solutions that we've come up with uh, throughout human history have been absolutely a terrible way to maybe look for comfort, but just know that discomfort has caused change. So embrace some of that discomfort in our lives. And the other two things that I want to talk about are motivation and ability. And this comes off of a, a tiny habits episode of the art of manliness podcast where Brett McKay interviewed Dr. BJ Fogg. He basically said like, if you have low motivation, um, but you have really high ability, then so, so essentially it's like, okay, so to put a financial example out there, it's a lot easier if you're looking to save a thousand dollars just just create a savings account of $1000. If you have the ability to make $500,000 a year compared to making 300 or to make compared to making $30,000 a year, it's probably going to be easier for that person to save $1000 who makes, you know, half a million dollars a year compared to somebody who makes $30,000 a year. But when you add motivation in there, let's say the person making half a million dollars a year expenditures are in the you know, millions of dollars a year, if they don't have any motivation to want to save that, then their money is going to go elsewhere. Maybe that person with $30,000 maybe doesn't have the ability to earn as much, but um, has a high, high motivation. So they might scrape together and, and find a way to, to save that $1,000 or build that. So it's all about motivation and ability, according to Dr. BJ Fogg. So we're into our actionable steps here, aren't we? Or we should, <laughs> so that's where we're trying to get to. Yeah, just shift uh, a little bit. Whatever though, sure. you can keep going with whatever. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about, and th this can Listen, tie into Ron, an we've either We've either lost people but, at this point or we have, uh, or they're still listening. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about, so the, the hierarchy of needs, I found some really interesting stuff from Sarah Newcomb. She is a writer and researcher for Morningstar, a financial website. You can go on and you know look up quotes for all the stock prices and mutual funds and ETF prices that you want there, I think, if you pay for it. But anyways, Morningstar is a pretty prestigious kind of financial 
operation, but she wrote a book called Loaded, and it's uh, an incredible personal finance and psychology read. And she kind of broke down this hierarchy of needs and, and said, okay, we shouldn't be belittling our needs or we shouldn't think that just because something that we really, really, really want is actually probably representative of something that we need. So thinking about wants versus needs isn't necessarily the right distinction to make is what she's saying. And I found this really compelling because if if you with your finances, if you really, really want to buy something and, you know, maybe you really want to buy that classic car or you really want to buy a, I don't know, you want to put in a, a really nice garden or something and you think that you shouldn't do that because it's not something that you need. However, Sarah Newcomb argues that, well, our wants are really have a direct line to our needs. She has an example in the book about a woman who really, really loved creating a really nice house, but she wasn't someone who could necessarily afford a nice house. She you know, was a small business owner with her husband. They didn't make a ton of money, but she had this incredible desire and, and I would say need to have a really nice house. And when she accepted the idea that our needs aren't necessarily in a hierarchy, but that they can just kind of fluctuate in and out in various degrees over time, it allowed herself to say, oh, okay, my desire to have a really nice home comes from a need to experience beauty. And, you know, having a nice home makes me feel safe. So, so what, Sarah Newcomb was kind of arguing was that the the problem with thinking about our needs, and this is a quote, the problem with thinking about our needs as a hierarchy is that it leads us to belittle our emotional and intellectual needs as if they are not essential to our well-being. I don't know. I just thought that was a, a really interesting point to make. It, it gives people the grace to say, oh, my desire for this or that isn't coming from a bad place. Maybe it there's a there's a deeper desire for connecting with other people or whatever it might be, getting out in nature more, getting more time to yourself to think and process, whatever it might be. If there's something that we want, think of it more as, okay, on a deeper level, this thing that I really, really want, what is the need that this is fulfilling? So I, that's kind of the one of the huge takeaways from this book loaded and I'll of course link to it, but yeah, I'd be interested in your thoughts on it, Andy, the, the wants versus needs distinction kind of can keep us from acknowledging that our wants are legitimate. And of course this is, you know, this could be oversimplifying and we could always find exceptions and we could get into all the nuances and such of this, but I don't know. I thought it was a really compelling idea and it helps people to reframe. So I guess a, t- a takeaway here is we can reframe the things that we want and and think about what are the needs that I'm trying to fulfill in my wants for something. And then if if there's a non-financial strategy to meet a need, one of the rec- recommendations is try not to fill, fulfill emotional needs in financial ways the grandparent or whomever it is that's trying to buy the love of somebody else. And we mentioned that earlier, but it's a, it's a very common example. Trying to, to buy the affection of somebody else by giving them money, giving them expensive gifts, 
that might not be the best way to fulfill a need. So if you can find non-financial ways and you can get to huge, huge arguments, some of our financial arguments that we might have could be discussing financial strategies when in reality, if you got to the core of the emotional and physical and whatever other kind of needs that you have, if you get to what's the need behind this argument that I'm having with my partner about money, then you can come up with a way that you can solve this situation in a in a win-win way instead of having to compromise. Because Sarah Newcomb argues that we should never actually try and compromise in a situation where there's a you know a tense financial conflict because if if one person feels like their needs aren't being met and the other person feels like their needs aren't being met you don't want to go halfway you want to find the solution for each person to meet their needs so if there's a non-financial way to do it that can really help reframe the argument you know if one person wants to be able to just feel more safe and secure by having more savings um, and another person wants to spend on something because they have a, a need to feel, I don't know, like, they, like they've accomplished something in their work or whatever it might be, so they might want to spend more. The other person wants to save more to feel that security. Try to discuss the needs instead of the financial strategies, and that can be a way to help with a huge financial conflict. So I kind of went all over the place there, but there's, there's just so much we can discuss here, and it's, it's so interesting, and there's so many different ways that this can manifest itself in people. So I'll hand it over to you, Andy, on what you think or what other steps people can take yeah, to help absolutely. change. So I, wanted, I wanted to address the you – know, and give a shout-out to a friend who, who sent me a message and is like, I just spent $300 on two pairs of sunglasses, and – you know, I, I I love how you put that. I love how you stated that because because yeah, we even on this show we've talked about needs and wants and and what have you. And I think that's a perfect way of looking at it. Is you know, obviously we have these wants, but we've 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 let society and and doofuses like us define what we believe should be needs and should be wants. We've talked about that that poisonous word should in the, in the past and, and how it's, it's more beneficial to take that out of our vocabulary. Be absolutely correct. One person's want might be another person's need and one person's need might be another person's want. It's different from every single person again, which is why we call it personal finance. It is your personal finance. So I really appreciate how, and I use the word intention when we talk about what's the intention behind this purchase, maybe this purchase of these sunglasses was to allow this person to, you know, maybe they've been extremely down lately and this is a way for them to express themselves to say like, oh, I feel really good in these. And it's, it's, it's fulfilling this, this long-term need of, of wanting to just feel more comfortable in my own skin instead of just like, Oh, I just want to go, you know, throw this money at this situation. And so, but far be it from us to, to judge those kind of things. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. So I'd, I'd always encourage people behind purchases. If it's going to be something, you know, large or something that they're kind of like, Ooh, that, that, that hit the bank account a little bit is, you know, what's the intention behind this? And the intention is maybe some long-term good or some, Hey, I just wanted to feel, you know, I wanted to feel pretty. I wanted to feel good for, 
you know, something, or maybe this completes an ensemble that I've been looking for, or, you know, kind of like you said, is it, is it fulfilling a temporary emotional need that obviously in 20 minutes, is this emotional need going to go away or is it fulfilling something on a deeper level? And so I, you know, I give yourself some credit with those, with those kind of things. Uh, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about as far as the, as, and applicable steps is what's keeping you in your quote unquote stage. I know, uh, this is a personal example for me, but I know that I was in the contemplative stage for, and I just had this conversation with my wife and not to get too personal, but I was really struggling with kind of who I am. I'm out of school now. I'm a therapist. I'm a friend. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a a quote unquote podcast co-host. And, you know, I feel like I was kind of spreading myself fairly thin and I was trying to give a hundred percent in all these different aspects of my life. And I, and I will say that my family life took a hit for, I don't even know how long it's been taking a hit, but I finally had a conversation with my wife that I was like, what was keeping me in the contemplative stage? Like, I know I need to change some things about my family life, but I wasn't quite ready to move into that preparation stage. And I believe it was because I was just comfortable. And my wife is a freaking saint. And she put up with me for so long. And kind of this excuse my language, but half-assed view of what I was doing to be a family man. And this isn't coming from her. This is coming from me. And so, but I was so comfortable in that contemplative stage and that having that kind of ambivalence of like, well, I think I could change, but you know, I think I could keep the status quo going for a while. And it, and it really didn't allow me to be, and, and this is why I also, um, I've recently been to therapy and, was really struggling with a lot of anxiety around being at home. And when I started to embrace this over the last, you know, handful of days, I started to feel that anxiety start to subside because I was being so much more involved with my family on the States or uh, on the level that I, that I wanted to be in. And so first and foremost, like really, really have a discussion with yourself about like, where am I in life? Where am I satisfied? Maybe where your body will naturally tell you things that you're uncomfortable with. If you feel a, a troubling anxiety about something, your body's literally telling you something is wrong. Identify it. Allow yourself to, to feel some of those emotions. Maybe you need to see a therapist about it. Maybe you need to talk to a friend about it. Maybe you just need to embrace those emotions and say, okay, what are these telling me? Yeah, that's, that's a, a great example. I don't think I could add anything to that. And I'm not sure what else I would really have to, to say on this topic. I've, I've got more notes, but I think that's a, a really uh, a good example to end it. And it's another way of saying that a- Andy and I have our own foibles and blind spots and things that we're in a pre-contemplative or contemplative stage that we're not addressing. It's all, it's, it's all part of the human experience. And we hope that we're not ever coming off as we've got all the answers or that we've got all this figured out or that we're the smart people and, and our listeners are, are the patient that needs to be fixed or something. No, we're, (laughs) we're all in this stuff together. Right. And to kind of, to kind of go on that and I can use, and I can, I can keep going on, on this example, just giving some, some personal examples of things that you can start to do by yourself. 
you know, if you want to make a change, uh, creating barriers that you want to stop and make it much easier to do the things that you want to change. I know for me, I was constantly like, I would get home and I'd be on my phone. I was just mindlessly scrolling through Facebook. So even creating a barrier of just putting my phone in the other room to make it much harder. And every time I would get up and I started to do this and every time I would get up to go into the room just to check my phone for no apparent reason, I'd be like, what am I doing? Like, first off, I'm getting up off this comfortable couch from being around my daughter or my wife or my son and, you know, or and making it easier to do the things that you want, such as getting on the floor with my daughter, because then I have to get up and, you know, I'm, I'm only 32, but my knees are starting to feel it a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, a good example is this, uh, if, you, if you're wanting to eat more healthy, make it difficult to access your eating, eating poorly and make it much easier to, to eat healthy. Like for me, I remember years ago, Ron, when I was living in Sioux Falls, I remember when I started tracking my calories and I was like 215 pounds, which normally for me, my ideal weight supposed to be like 185 or something. So clearly I was, you know, out of my range for that. But I remember like tracking my calories for one day, how many snack foods I was eating. So I literally threw all of that out. And all I had in my home was things that I had to prepare to cook, to, to make in my house. And so if it's one thing that you can take away from this, you know, these small little things that you can do to start making those changes. But first, identify that that thing that you want to do. I always encourage patients to write out goals. I encourage patients to write out objectives or, objectives or steps to accomplish those goals. But sorry, I know I know I'm keeping this going a little bit, but check your motivation, check your intention behind what you're doing is, you know, and then develop some goals for yourself. And then ask yourself, are these decisions that I'm making, you know, helping or hindering those goals that I, that I hope to accomplish in life, maybe just for maybe for the month, maybe for the week, maybe for the year, I don't know, but define those things. Yeah, we'll keep coming back to that. It's kind of one of our main themes is, what do you value? What are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? Frame, Frame your change in a positive way so that, you know, you can think about it and and allow yourself to dream about, okay, what do I want to accomplish in the short term? What do I want to accomplish in the long term? You know, being kind to yourself, framing it positively, it really does go a long way. And it, it might seem kind of cliche to say that, but there's there's a lot of truth and a lot of helpfulness to it in allowing yourself to, I don't know, dream and, and have positive goals for the future and to give yourself permission to to say okay yes i i can accomplish i can accomplish this or this isn't i don't know something i want something that you want or want to accomplish it's not something that's out of reach absolutely okay well i think that's probably a good stopping point for today really i think an interesting conversation so if you if you want to hear more about this if you want to engage with us on it. If you want to push back on something we said, feel free to send us an email at moneyandthemind at gmail.com. You know, you can reach out to us on our social media pages. And uh, unless you have anything else, Andy, I think we're good to go for today. Real cool. We have uh, we have a few new uh, people we're planning on having on the show 
over the next couple months. So we plan on having Dr. Justin on again. So if you have questions or things that you would want to ask him, we're still planning out our topics, but we have, we have hammered out, uh, I believe my buddy Peyton is going to come on and my buddy Miguel is also going to come on the show as well. And they're just going to kind of give us some, some new perspectives of some different cultural experiences with money and how, you know, views change uh, over the course of, of, of culture and whatnot. So, you know, if you have questions, uh, you want to know more, reach out to us. We absolutely love to hear from you. I think with that, we'll call it a day. So stay safe, everyone. And thank you for listening to Money and the Mind.